today's sermon, the blessing of forgiveness. Now, David gives this statement in Psalm 139, verse 2. He says this, speaking to the Lord, You know, you know when I sit and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. This can be a problem. Because all of us sin. Even if we've been Christians for many years. In fact, as we grow mature in Christ, we begin to see sin in our life that we had not even noticed before. The Apostle John writes, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. 1 John 1.8 John wrote this when he was an old man, near the end of his life, an apostle in his 90s. Now we might think he had gotten to the point where he no longer sinned. But John includes himself when he says, if we say we have no sin, we, including John, deceive ourselves. And guess what? God sees it all. Nothing, nothing is hidden from his sight. This is why forgiveness is one of the greatest blessings we can imagine. The God who knows all of our sin will forgive all of our sin. When God forgives you, he wipes the record clean. All of it. King David tried to hide his sin from God and hide it from others. And many think that Psalm 32 should be read in conjunction with Psalm 51, his great psalm of repentance, which he wrote after his affair with Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. While his armies went off to war, David stayed behind. He stayed behind in Jerusalem, and what did he do? He seduced one of his officer's wives. And when she became pregnant, David arranged for her husband, Uriah, to be killed, to be killed in battle. David had adultery and murder on his hands. And he hid his sin. But the prophet Nathan confronted David. And David describes his confession in Psalm 51, a passionate, emotional psalm. As part of this confession, David made a promise to God. He said this, I will teach transgressors your ways. And I will teach sinners. And sinners, as a result, sinners will return to you. Psalm 32 could be the fulfillment of that promise. Now, just because 32 comes before 51 in our Bibles doesn't mean one was written before the other. In Psalm 32, David does not teach sinners, and then in, in Psalm 32, David does teach sinners and turns them back to God. 
So there is good reason to have David's sin with Bathsheba in the back of our minds as you and I look at Psalm 32. And this raises the question, what, what will we do when we sin? Will we try to hide our sin? Or will we confess our sin? We need to turn to God and admit our sin so that we can be forgiven. I had an experience when I was in seminary in Oregon, as a matter of fact, where it wasn't an outright sin that I committed, but I was being disobedient about something that the Lord wanted me to do, and I was going the other way. And he put his hand on me, and he pushed me down in a sense, almost a deep depression. And I, 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 I sort of knew what it was all about, but I didn't want, I did not want to go back to where, I did not want to make it right. And yet, he got me to the point where I did. And I was relieved. And I was not only relieved, but filled with a spirit of joy and thanksgiving and dedication to the Lord. Sometimes we have to go through those. We do. We are disobedient people at times. And I, I, got, I believe God gave me that as a lesson to not forget. And I remember I was at the time I was taking a course in the book of Hebrews. And it talks about the discipline of the Lord in Hebrews. And if you're not disciplined by the Lord when you're being disobedient, the writer of Hebrews says you're illegitimate. You're not really a child of his. So David declares here the blessing of forgiveness in verses 1 and 2. Now this is like a beatitude, and this beatitude is the heart of the Son. And we're going to spend most of our time on these first two verses. The word blessed stands out because Psalm 1 and 2, the introduction to the Psalms, begin and end with the same word. And there's an important difference, though, in Psalm 1. Psalm 1 declares the blessing of the ideal man who never sins. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. This blessing here, in this verse, is for someone who constantly walks with God, walks in the ways of God, which none of us really do. In fact, the tense of the Hebrews here in verse 1 indicate that this man is never involved with anything tainted by evil. The man of Psalm 1 is the perfect man, Jesus Christ. But Psalm 32 declares the blessing of a man who is far from perfect, a person like you and me. This person does sin, and yet God forgives this person. <coughs> Verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I love that statement. I love that ending statement there, to, to have no deceit in one's life. What a wonderful characteristic that would be. And David declares a double blessing on those that God forgives. And to emphasize the blessing of forgiveness, David repeats the beatitude in verse 2. 
What better way to encourage you and me to confess our sins than a double promise of blessing? I, I know we, uh, we don't have public confession very often in church. And I'm, I'm not against the fact that we don't have public confession. I'm not even encouraging that we do. But I grew up in a Roman Catholic church. And I can remember as a young boy, every Saturday afternoon, going to the church in Osterville and going in the confessional and talking to the priest about my sins and going out that door, resolved to never do them again. Guess what? I was back there the next week, going down that litany of sins again, and week after week after week, just so I could take communion on Sunday. Because you couldn't take communion on Sunday back in those days unless you had been to confession to confess your sins. We are so liberated from that. We can talk directly to God anytime. We don't have to wait till Saturday afternoon in some special church. We can do it whenever. And yet, I've been in situations as a pastor where somebody has been burdened by a sin and they needed to talk to someone about it. And just talking to someone about it is a help. But talking to God about it is the greatest help. So this blessing is even more attractive and tempting because a, a translation of the word blessed here is happy. and So we could translate verses 1 and 2, how happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And I, I, happy is kind of a, a word that we, has kind of been abused. I, I would say how filled with joy is a person. But let's say how happy is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. How thankful this is the joy of knowing that God is for you. That he is kind and that he is forgiving. And everyone who wants to be blessed, everyone who wants happiness, anybody in their right mind anyways, how happy and blessed are those who are forgiven. Amen. Now this blessing comes with full forgiveness, not partial forgiveness. So verses 1 and 2 are an example of what we call a parallelism. David places four phrases side by side. And this is not just flowery language. This parallelism covers the full scope of our sin and the full scope of God's forgiveness. The Bible uses about a half a dozen words for sin. David uses three of them here in the psalm. And each one has its own meaning, its own nuance. The word transgression has to do with rebellion. God created us in his image to live on this earth as his representatives. And like a father who leaves his son in charge of a house while he is gone, he expects us to take care of the earth and to take care of each other. But we do not always obey him in this regard. The word sin has to do with missing the mark. An archer bends a bow and shoots and the arrow falls, falls short. A, a person lines up uh, his or her stance to hit the ball onto the green and they hook it into the woods. This archer and this golfer didn't hit what they were aiming at. They missed the mark. And this is a picture of sin. 
We try to follow Christ, but we still miss the mark. The third word for sin is the in these verses is the word iniquity. It can mean crookedness or perversion or waywardness. It can also mean guilt and punishment or even intentional sin. It is sometimes used in a general way to talk about sin as a whole. And so looking at these three words is like holding up a diamond. We see different facets of our sin. The first word describes our relationship to God. We have rebelled against him. The second word describes our relationship to God's law. We fall short and miss the mark. The third word describes the effect that sin has on us. We are crooked, perverse, and guilty before God. With these three words, David describes our human condition. With these three words, he includes every kind of sin. But the most important thing in these verses is not the nature of sin. It is that all of these sins can be forgiven. I thought I'd hear an amen on that one. <laughs> I'm not usually... I don't usually amen my own sermons, but I was about to <laughs> David matches these three words for sin with three words for pardon. The first word is forgiven. It literally means to lift off, to carry away. Your transgression was like a boulder pinning you to the ground. But God came along and he lifted it. And he carried it away. The second word, covered, has to do with atonement. The blood of a sacrifice covered the sin of the people and restored their relationship to God. The third word describes what God does not do. He does not count iniquities against this blessed person. This is a bookkeeping word. It means to charge something to an account. When God forgives, he does not charge our sin to our account. If you received your credit card statement in the mail, but when you opened it, there were no charges, you know that you used the card, but your balance is zero, your minimum payment is zero, your penalties are zero, our sin is removed from God's ledger. The spreadsheet is totally empty. This is the same accounting word that Moses uses in Genesis 15.6 to describe the righteousness of Abraham that he had by faith. Abraham, quote, believed the Lord and he accounted it. He counted it to him as righteousness. In God's accounting, he leaves sin off the ledger and what does he do? He adds righteousness to the ledger for those that he blesses. Takes off the unrighteousness and adds his righteousness. This is incredibly important because the Apostle Paul joins Genesis 15, 6 to Psalm 32. He does this to teach salvation by faith in the book of Romans. We read the passage earlier, but I'll read it again. 
Romans 4, 2-8. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Quote, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. It's a salary. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness by faith. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. By not counting sins against us, God declares you and me to be righteous, right with God, right in his sight. This is God's blessing. It is from God's hand. It is not a reward for good behavior. Just become, come to church every Sunday. It's not a reward. Psalm 32 is at the heart of the gospel. God clears the ledger. He deletes the data on your spreadsheet. And so the question is, who receives this blessing? The parallelism of the first two verses shifts in the second half of verse 2 to identify the kind of person God forgives. It is the one in whose spirit there is no deceit. No deceit at all. Zero deceit. This deceit does not have to do primarily with lying to others. This is about lying to yourself and lying to God. Again, John says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceived. We deceive ourselves, and the truth is just not in us. How do we lie to ourselves? Well, we can be proud and think we've never done anything wrong, and when there's tension in a conflict or in a relationship, it's always someone else's fault. Uh, we can lie to ourselves by thinking God does not know about our sin because it happened a long time ago and a long way from home. Uh, we can deceive ourselves by comparing ourselves to others. We might say, uh, I'm not like Fred at work. I'm not like Susie across the street. I'm not like those other people. We can deceive ourselves by being moral persons. We can see, deceive ourselves by focusing on the externals. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I always drive the speed limit. I go to church. By the way, driving down here this morning, I, 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 I've done it several times when I come here. I, drive, I purposely drive the speed limit, and every single car on the Mid-Cape Highway passes me. Some a little faster than others, but they always pass me. So I don't know what it means by speed limit. It must be speed limit plus five. Is that what it is? <laughs> you know, just bend. We gotta bend. It's not literal. Don't take those speed signs literal. Uh, you gotta have an imagination. 
Well, back to... Uh, we can deceive ourselves by thinking that this psalm is for somebody else. Maybe that person who's not here today. <laughs> but the blessing of forgiveness is for those who do not lie to themselves. We can sometimes be so deceived, especially, I don't know if this happens early in your Christian life or later in your Christian life or what, but it seems to be those serious seasons in your Christian life where we can be so self-deceived that we try to actually deceive God. We figure we can pull one off that he's not going to notice. Even though he knows more about us than we know about us. We ignore sin. We pretend it didn't happen. We try to hide it from him. But down deep, we know, when we really think about it, he does see. If God truly loves you and he truly loves me, he will let us know that he sees. And this is where David turns next as he describes the process of forgiveness. In verses 3 to 7, David describes his own personal experience as God would not allow him to ignore his own sin. He describes how verses 1 and 2 were lived out in his own life. His inner turmoil led to confession and forgiveness. And once he had been restored, he did the right thing. He taught others about this truth. The process began with David's stubborn silence. He would not confess his sin, but kept on going as if nothing was wrong. But God would not let him get away with it. Verses 3 and 4. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, 24-7. For day and night your hand was heavy, heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. This is a perfect description of the misery of living with a guilty conscience. If you are a Christian, this describes the way you have felt when you would not confess your sin to God, when you refuse to confess your sin to God. Physiologically, David's bones wasted away. He felt drained. His strength was sapped. Sin and guilt can indeed have an effect on our health and vitality. When he laid down, he could not rest. Well, that's a terrible place to be. You lay down for rest and you just can't Finally, David gave in to the pressure and he confessed. Verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I would confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Selah. If God's hand is heavy on you and your conscience, you need to know he loves you. And he's making you miserable for your own good. You can be so stubborn and so sinful 
that God sometimes has to force us to turn to him for healing and forgiveness. He dragged this confession out of David. If the Holy Spirit is making you miserable because of your sin, that is a sign that God truly cares for you. The time to worry, and this is very important, the time to worry is when you sin and God doesn't even bother with you. That's a scary place to be. Amen. God disciplines those he loves, and he does it for their spiritual good. One Bible commentator says this, The guilt of sin is forgiven through Jesus Christ. In God's accounting, our sin is placed on his ledger. His innocence was put on our ledger. And to pick up the credit card analogy again, Christ received his statement in the mail and saw, saw all sorts of charges he did not make. But he didn't call the company and complain. He paid those charges for you and for me. On the cross, Jesus died for sinners and paid for the guilt of everyone who turns to him. Because David had experienced God's forgiveness so powerfully in his own life, he turns to teach God's people. In verses 6 to 7, Therefore, he says, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. The phrase, let everyone who is godly, tells us that David is thinking primarily of believers as he writes this psalm. Non-believers do not usually have the slightest twinge of a conscience when they sin unless God is working in their lives. God is not correcting them and believing many of it, leading them until he calls them. David is thinking of godly people like himself who fall into sin. The temptation in that situation is to stay silent. You are ashamed, you're angry with yourself, you don't want to face God, you don't want to admit what you have done. Like Adam and Eve, what do you do in the Garden of Eden? You run off and hide. You run off and hide when you hear God coming, walking in the cool of the day. And when that happens, you need to call out to God. Call out to God while you can. If you do not confess your sins to God now, you might not be able to call out to him tomorrow. Sin is deceitful. If you do not deal with it, it will harden your heart. You know, I, I realize as I just made those last few statements, um, I'm not your pastor. It's probably not my place to be pointing this out to you. Um, but I am a Christian who loves Jesus, and I think it's just as important that you hear it from me as from anybody else. Maybe some pastors wouldn't want to preach this sermon because they're afraid that people would be upset. But I, I, I have a burden for everybody's heart, including my own. Finally, David describes the result of forgiveness. These are the blessings that will follow when we confess our sins. First, God speaks his promise of guidance to David and to us. Verses 8 and 9. 
He says this, I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like that horse or a mule who went out understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. The sort of guidance here that God is promising is not what college you should attend. It's not about who you should marry, or whether you should take a new job offer, or some other important decision. In context, this guidance concerns godly living. Living that will glorify God. The Holy Spirit will teach you to obey and walk in the way of the righteous. A horse or a mule will not obey without a bit turning this way or that. In context, the bit here is the heavy hand of God that forced David to finally confess his sin. And God wants you and me to understand his ways and to walk in them by our own will. God promises his enduring love for those who confess their sins. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, verse 10, but steadfast love surrounds, surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Steadfast love is God's covenantal commitment. It is his commitment to his people. He's like a father, always hoping his prodigal will return. Always ready to welcome him home. If you trust him to forgive your sin, his love will in fact surround you, envelop you. The third result of forgiveness is joy. Be glad. Be glad, rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright and high. Can you imagine what it would be like in this church right now if everybody stood up and yelled out some hallelujah joy to the Lord? Blow the roof right off this place. I realize maybe it's not something you'd want to do, but Once in a while, I just wonder what would happen if we did that. I mean, I'm finding myself, as I get older, to be less and less resistant to um, the experiential side of Christianity. I mean, I've been around all my life as a Christian almost with people who dot their I's and cross their T's exactly the same way all the time. And they're very proud of it. And they know a lot more about theology than I do. But sometimes I wonder if they really love Jesus. I really wonder. I mean, as I talk to him, he never, he's never mentioned. I think you can do both. I can think you can be theologically accurate and still love Jesus and be expressive about it. And I'm, I, I, that's one of the things I love about not being a full-time pastor in a particular church. I'm liberated. I don't have to conform to all those strictures. Oh, well, the pastor can only do this. He can only do that. He has to be a certain type of way. He has to dress a certain way. I mean, It's ridiculous. I mean, I'm very conservative in my dress. I'm rather conservative in my uh, demeanor. But I still want the joy of the Lord to be very evident in my life. I don't want to be bogged down with perfunctory, whatever you want to call it, that sometimes bogs us down. It's what I call institutionalism. 
we need the church, we need all the guidelines, we need the bylaws, we need the statement of faith. I, I am very committed to all those things, but sometimes we just need to stop and say, what's number one? It's the love of Jesus Christ in me and in other people and our love to one another. That's it in a nutshell. And if you don't get anything else out of this sermon, get that. So, be glad in the Lord. I mean, that's a, that's a command. And rejoice, O righteous. And shout for joy, all you upright and high. There's nothing wrong with those things. They're glorious when they're done in the right spirit, in the right way, in the right place. So that verse is a very, very, what I would call, loud verse. When you fail and God forgives you, it makes you want to stand up and shout for joy. The expression, be glad and rejoice, both describes spontaneous shouts of joy. After describing sin in three words in the first three verses, David has three shouts for joy at the end for those who are forgiven. If you are truly forgiven, you will make some noise. Jesus said that. He who is forgiven little loves little. If you know what God has done for you, it makes you want to shout. If your heart has been, has, is not touched, if your emotions are not involved, do you really know you have been forgiven? God is so good to us. He knows more about us than we know about ourselves. But he will forgive. So we need to confess our sin to him daily. His complete knowledge means complete forgiveness. Praise his precious name. Let us pray. Gracious, merciful, loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do not allow us your comfort when we are not walking with you in accordance with your word. And whenever we refuse to confess our sins, you give us an inward discomfort and a sense of guilt. You keep your hand upon us. Our energy evaporates as from the heat of a summer night. O oh Lord, the misery of unconfessed sin is actually a grace. It is a sign. It is a sign of being your child and that we are loved by you. Thank you for the gift of your God-sent conviction. Merciful Father, thank you for your forgiveness because when we confess our sins, there is real forgiveness in which the ache and the heaviness and the apathy disappear. When this happens, our hearts sing. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You are a hiding place for us. You surround us with shouts of deliverance. Loving Father, thank you for the blessed discomfort that you bring to us when we are away from you. Hear us now, individually, as we take a moment to confess our sin to you. Thank you, Father. We pray this prayer in and through Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, crucified, risen, and coming again. Amen.